This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. So as we record this episode of Quick to Listen, we're in the midst of four days of confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. After Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last month, with less than two months before election day, Trump nominated Coney Barrett to replace her on the bench. Today it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court. She is a woman of unparalleled achievement, towering intellect, sterling credentials, and unyielding loyalty to the Constitution, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Proceedings have been contentious. After Justice Anson Scalia died in 2015, Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to hold a vote or hold confirmation hearings after President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the seat more than a year before the election. The American people may well elect a president who decides to nominate Judge Garland for Senate consideration. The next president may also nominate somebody very different. Either way, our view is this. Give the people a voice in filling this vacancy. Their decision to move forward this time with this domination has provoked some charges of hypocrisy. The Senate majority is rushing this process and jamming President Trump's nominee through the Senate while people are actually voting just 22 days before the end of the election. More than 9 million Americans have already voted and millions more will vote while this illegitimate committee process is underway. In addition, Coney Barrett's relationship with her Catholic charismatic community, People of Praise, has drawn scrutiny as critics have asked what type of authority this group might have over her life and also her decisions. When you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern. But for us at Quick to Listen, we thought this would be a good week to talk about the state of the Christian legal world. Is Amy Coney Barrett an anomaly in this space? What's it like being a woman in this space? How closely do Catholics and Protestants work together? And what type of institutions and issues carry weight in this world? You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director here at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, we're going to be doing a lot of learning about things, but before we do that, let us just insert our opinion <laughs> into this and do a gut check on everything to do with Amy Coney Barrett. There's obviously a lot that has seemingly stirred a lot of visceral reactions out of people from the timing of things to Amy herself. How is this all making you feel? Being editorial director, as I've mentioned many times, you tend to come to the news with less, I think, feeling and more like, okay, what do we need to cover? We did a fair bit of reading on Barrett 
back previous Supreme Court nomination times when it looked like maybe she'd be one of the nominees. wasn't terribly surprising that she was nominated this time. We kind of had some bio stuff ready to go and kind of some ideas of, of what the conversation might be. I have to say, I guess if I want to talk about my feelings, which is not something I often do, or for my talk <laughs> with my, you know, especially therapist. for politics ones. Yeah, especially for politics ones, right? Usually save that with for my therapy sessions. But no, I will say I have been frustrated with some of the conversation about the conversation about Barrett's faith. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff on the left that has been very strongly pointed to, especially from you know, these old sayings, you know, the, the dogma lives loud in you. You know, a lot of that stuff is, is pretty well covered ground. I'm kind of in backlash mode a little bit. You know, I think that, you know, over the weekend I saw some tweets that were really criticizing a New York Times profile of People of Praise, this organization that she's been associated with, and some other things. And I'm like, that that was a very positive profile. Like it was kind of a debunking profile. Say like, this is not really a particularly crazy group. But I saw a number of tweets from a lot of people who I, I respect, you know, kind of using that as another kind of example of anti-religious bigotry in the media or or among the left. And I'm like, I don't know, man. There's a certain kind of hermeneutic, certain kind of reading of these stories that I think goes in a little bit either uncharitably, I'm worried about backlash to the backlash to the backlash. People are, are going to kind of see every time Barrett's faith is mentioned as tack on faith. That's where my <laughs> that's where my kind of dander got up. If you're asking me about my feelings on this. My strongest feeling has been like, don't criticize you know, good reporting about Barrett as kind of indicative of, of anti-religious bigotry. Like there's plenty of actual anti-religious bigotry to complain about. How about you, Morgan? What's your gut check on all things Amy Coney Barrett? Yeah, I think there's really a lot to work through and process when it comes to <laughs> this type of thing. I mentioned that the timing of this, of course, is one of the things that I think is the most intense parts of all of this. To go from having Scalia die with seemingly with seemingly enough time to nominate another justice, um, and then for that nomination to be held up only for Ginsburg to die about six weeks out from them and then now there to be magically enough time I think that that has added like a lot of intensity <laughs> to what might have been a little bit more time to breathe through this and definitely has clouded how I feel about everything as well and made it hard for me to kind of just try to separate everything in my mind if that makes sense so how do I feel about Coney Barrett herself how do I feel about the process how do I feel about the fact that the election is so close all of those things just make that difficult I will say that it's been interesting just to get to read some stuff about Coney Barrett. Obviously, she, being a woman, just makes her unusual for this type of post. There have not been very many women at all that have served on the Supreme Court. And then on top of that, not only does she have children, but she has young children as well. And I think I personally find it inspiring to see someone ascend to the highest ranks of their profession, right? While at the same time, raising a family, and that seems pretty rare for women to be able to be in that space. And so there's something that I feel like very like excited about the possibility of all of that. I am really interested by some of the conversations and questions about her religious community, though I think because I've watched people talk past each other so much in that space, it's made me almost avoidant in the same ways to get too much into that. I don't know. There's a lot of feelings that I frankly feel and that I, <laughs> to some extent, have tried to like block out because it has felt kind of overwhelming to deal with all of that. I'm hopeful today, though, that we can contextualize her a little bit more within the larger world that she sits in. I, I think one question that I've had for myself is how much of an anomaly is she? I'm hopeful that we'll answer that today. Who is our guest? 
Our guest today is Kim Colby. She has worked for the Christian Legal Society's Center for Law and Religious Freedom since graduating from Harvard Law School in 1981. She has represented religious groups in several appellate cases, including two cases heard by the Supreme Court, and she's filed numerous amicus briefs in federal and state courts. They are worth reading. She was also involved in the congressional passage of the Equal Access Act in 1984, which was a very important schools access legislation. This is not her first rodeo on Supreme Court nominations, so we're thrilled to chat with her about this one and also how the Christian legal world has changed over the past several decades. Thanks for coming on the show, Kim. It's my pleasure to be here, Ted and Morgan. <laughs> All right, Kim, it is really great to have you here. And I would just love to kick off our conversation today by asking, is there a Christian legal community? And if so, who's in it? And who are some of the players and institutions in this space? Yes, there's definitely a Christian legal community, and there it, that's in two different ways. So I work for the Christian Legal Society, and we are an association of Christian lawyers that's nationwide, as well as Christian law students who meet on their campuses during their law school years. And so there is a community of lawyers who are Christians who are trying to bring their faith and align it with the legal practice, which is difficult in many ways. So there's that. Christian legal community. And then I'm also part of the Christian Religious Freedom Legal Community, which is a number of organizations that focus on trying to defend religious freedom, not just for Christians, but for all faiths. Give me a little bit of an understanding about kind of, I think, the Christian legal society world, but also just kind of like people who are lawyers, judges, law professors. Give me a sense of like, you know, who are like passionate about their faith and who are eager to connect with other Christians in that space. Is it particularly different than, you know, in terms of makeup from kind of the larger kind of legal community? I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, are Christians more drawn to corporate law, religious liberty law? Are they more interested in being lawyers, judges? What's kind of disproportionate about Christians in the law world? In many ways, I think the Christian legal community generally is a reflection of the larger legal community. They, people go into the law for a number of reasons, and they do a, a variety of things with their law degree. And some are the people you see on TV in trials, and some are corporate counsel, some are law professors, some do public policy and never actually practice law in the technical sense. So in some ways, the Christians really do reflect just the, the larger legal community. But I do think CLS itself has two focuses that I think are somewhat more predominant for Christian attorneys. And one is the group I work with in CLS, which is the Center for Law and Religious Freedom, doing religious freedom work. A lot of Christian lawyers, if they are not actually doing religious freedom work full-time, they are trying to do it an occasional amicus brief in their legal practice or, you know, they're following it with interest. And then the other part of CLS is our legal Christian legal aid ministry. And I do think a lot of Christian lawyers are very driven to do pro bono work for the underserved in our communities. And CLS networks and affiliation, I think it's over 40 
different Christian legal aid ministries across the country. Oh, wow, that's great. What kinds of things do Christians need to kind of come together to encourage each other? Like, you know, apart from like supporting, you know, so a lot of the pro bono work, the kind of service oriented, the outward journey. I'm curious a little bit about the inward journey of some of these networks. You mentioned sometimes it can be difficult to be a Christian in some of these law spaces. So what are the kind of mutual helping each other, supporting each other? encouraging each other. What are some of those issues that keep coming up time and again? For the everyday Christian lawyer who is doing a fairly typical practice, they want to have encouragement because there's a lot of pressure in practicing law. There's pressure because you're standing up in front of a judge sometimes and representing a client and you don't always know the answers or you feel like, oh, gee, I wish I'd read that one more case that the judge is asking about. So there's just a lot of stress in the legal practice, just in how law works. And then it's also stressful because it's a business. It's a small business and the typical lawyer whether they're at a large firm or a solo practice, they're always kind of looking at where is my next client and where is my next hourly billing coming in. There's just a lot of stress in practice of law. It's It can be cutthroat, and we as Christians are to treat others differently, right? We're to take care of them. We're to treat them as we would want to be treated, and that's not always how others see the way of practicing law. So there are a number of different ways that Christian attorneys look to each other for encouragement, for mentoring, for saying, hey, I've got this issue or this ethical dilemma. Help me think it through. I want to talk about Amy Coney Barrett, especially with regards to how she fits into the Christian legal world. When you think of her area of expertise and the institutions that she came up in, to what extent does she kind of reflect what many of the attorneys in your community look like? And to what extent does she deviate or depart from them? I don't know her. I should say that from the beginning. I haven't read a lot of her writings, but I'm about as familiar with her as probably the two of you are and the public is becoming familiar with her. She seems to be an exemplary person, very self-disciplined. I think all of us are scratching our heads and saying, how does she have a young family? in a large family and do all the things that she's accomplished. So clearly she is part of a community. I don't know if it's her family or her friends or her faith community. It looks like it's her faith community that provide a a strong network of support for her. I think there are a couple of things that I haven't seen elsewhere said that I would just note. And one is that Christian law professors exist and they're very important to the work I do. But They don't exist in the same numbers or at the elite law schools as they should. I think the fact that we see Amy Coney Barrett teaching at Notre Dame, Notre Dame Law School is a a very strong and respected law school. Perhaps someone of her caliber, if she weren't as religious as she is, you might expect to see her at, you know, one of the Ivy League law schools. I think there definitely is a bias against people of faith on the faculties of some of, of the elite law schools. And that's that's unfortunate. But the other thing about her is that she seems to be a very well-rounded person. And as I was describing a little earlier, it's hard sometimes for lawyers to be well-rounded. They tend to become very focused almost myopically on their work. And it looks like she has kept a network of friends. She has given to her faith community and she certainly is giving to her family. That is something where I think we all want to know more about how she's managed that. Ted and I both talked about at the beginning of the show her involvement with this 
Christian community, people of praise, and at least by in the political space, there's been made a, a big deal about the fact that she lives in this type of intentional community with her family. I'm curious, as someone who's a lawyer, what type of reaction to her participation or her belonging to this community do you have from that? Are there any type of red flags that you see or concerns that you nervous? No, I think we all are aware that there are religious communities that can be too intense, right? I think so many of us, especially often new Christians, they have this strong desire to get back to the Acts church, right? The one that's described in the beginning of Acts where everything is in common and there's a great deal of community. And I think many of us long for that. We're also aware that often those types of communities can become too inward focused and can give rise to abusive situations, but that does not seem to be what has happened with this community. And I think one of the clear signs of that is the degree to which Amy Coney Barrett herself is so involved outwardly. That's, I think, always the thing you look for is, is it an inwardly focused group to the exclusion of all else? Or is it a group that provides a basis for its members to go out and serve the broader community? Yeah, I, I like that line about getting back to the Acts community because this idea of, you know, kind of getting back to ad fontes, getting back to the sources or getting back to the, you know, original church, one of the topics that's come up a lot, which is kind of originalism and textualism. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Can you kind of give a quick summary of what originalism and textualism are and why they're being discussed right now with Barrett? I can give you a very quick summary. I'm not an expert, but originalism and textualism are both kind of the same thing, but one is talking more about the Constitution, the originalism, and textualism is looking more at statutes. But it's the same idea, which is that judges should not be deciding cases based on their preference as to what the policy should be, but that the role of the judge is to respect what the legislatures or the people's representatives have said what the law is, and it's the role of the judge to take what the law says and apply it to a particular situation, a case, in front of the judge. Many people feel that too often in the last oh, 30, 40 years, judges have imposed their view of what the law should be rather than interpreting the law as to how the people's representatives intended it to be. And so originalism would say, okay, there was a constitutional convention, the states voted for the constitution. Now, when we're interpreting the constitution, we need to figure out what was intended by this particular provision of the constitution and apply that. And of course, that has to be updated somewhat for the current circumstances, because many, you know, there have been technological changes and and the 14th Amendment was added to the constitution. But it's really trying to be genuine and fair to what was meant when the Constitution was agreed upon, because otherwise judges are just imposing their own views on what the law should be rather than being bound by the Constitution, which they take an oath to be. Textualism is just simply that same idea, but instead of interpreting the Constitution, it's interpreting a a federal or state law that's been passed by Congress or the state legislature. So that seems fairly straightforward. What's the pushback? I mean, why why isn't everyone an originalist or a a textualist? What's the best argument kind of against that approach? Best argument is one that I think Justice Breyer wrote a book called The Living Constitution or The Active Constitution. I should have looked up the name before this. But the pushback is 
that was, you know, the Constitutional Convention was 200 some years ago. Things have changed. Many things have changed for the better because clearly African Americans and women were excluded from much of the Constitution or even, you know, their rights were not protected. And so the pushback is, hey, the Constitution has to evolve with the times and there's a better policy than what was intended 200 years ago, that's what should be implemented. That's the best pushback on the argument. Can I get a, a lay of the land? I mean, we talked earlier that there's, you know, Christians in kind of all <laughs> all areas of law, and, and some of them are going to be, you know, more involved in discussing these issues than others. But I'm curious if, you know, we talked about, you know, she's from Notre Dame Law School. Notre Dame Law School is a place where you're going to find more originalists, or you're going to find that to be more of a more of a high priority. Is this a debate in CLS circles, or is it kind of like pretty much if you're in CLS, you're kind of going to be pretty passionate about originalism? Because it's it's been discussed a lot with with Barrett. I don't know how how wide the divide. This is a huge area of debate, and it has been since the mid 1980s when Attorney General Edwin Meese. He was attorney general under President Reagan. He gave a speech to the ABA, and he's the one who really reintroduced the idea of originalism and textualism into the the public conversation. So that conversation has been going on for quite a while. As to any, I think, gathering of Christians, CLS included, you'll have a debate of people on both sides. So on one hand, I'm not I don't, the Christian community is in no way monolithic on on this debate. On the other hand, I think that Christians do tend to be more open to originalism and textualism because we take the Bible seriously, right? We take what words mean seriously. There is a very strong dynamic in the law for the past 30, 40 years that, well, the words are there in the law or in the Constitution, but they're really there for us to pour into it whatever we want. I think you'll see a little more resistance to that idea in the Christian community because we take words very seriously, I think in part because of our faith and our trying to live according to what the Bible says. That is very interesting. Ted and I have been talking about this idea over the past couple of weeks. So to hear you say it, we were like, oh my gosh, she said it. (laughs) So that does lead me to a question, which is, do you think then there's a difference, given that in my experience, Protestants and Catholics read the Bible differently, generally, that Catholics and Protestants have different feelings, I guess, about textualism, originalism as a result. Well, that is interesting. I haven't thought about that myself or really explored it. My instinct would be no, even though I I understand what you're saying, because theologically that's true. I have not seen that divide on the legal question of originalism and textualism. But that is, that's very interesting. There is a divide I've seen just in very recent debate where there's a Catholic law professor at Harvard. So there, there I see, I have to correct myself. There is at least one. And I know of a couple of others. But there was a debate, I think this summer, where a Catholic law professor basically came out and said, I, I'm, I'm really making this very rough. When we have the political power to impose what's right, as we understand our faith to teach what's right, then we should do that. And I don't agree with that. I think that's a very dangerous idea. And there was a lot of debate about that for a few weeks this summer, because I do think there might be 
and and I want to be fair to my Catholic friends because in the religious freedom world, I work with my Catholic friends all the time and they are invaluable and they are wonderful supporters of religious freedom. But I do think there may be a strain. I don't know if it's unique to Catholicism, but there may be a strain of this idea that you impose your religious values in the public square because you know what's right and the church teaches what's right. Whereas Protestants, I think, are more aligned, but I I know Protestants that would do the same thing. We as Protestants often are more aligned with the idea that we have to have an open public square because otherwise, whenever anyone gets too much power and starts imposing their values, it means that eventually the dissenters from those values are persecuted in one way or another. I think this is me personally, that First Amendment really reflects the Reformation, which is you get all these ideas out in the public square and you let them fight it out in the marketplace of ideas. We believe that truth eventually prevails if if the marketplace is allowed to really be free. And I think there are a lot of Catholics that would agree with that. And I'm sure that Judge Barrett is of that dynamic. And maybe the, the debate we were seeing this summer may reflect a little bit of the divide. There's there's this kind of long tradition of kind of Catholic social teaching that has led some Catholics to be a little bit more, I guess, critical of some of the free enterprise aspects of capitalism and, and, and some of the kind of unrestricted business regulation stuff. Whereas, you know, a number of the kind of politically conservative, religiously conservative Protestants have been, have tied together free enterprise business stuff, I guess, with some of the religious freedom stuff, I guess. I, you know, CT's history is very much, you know, we were founded by Billy Graham very much, but we were funded by J. Howard Pugh. And J. Howard Pugh of Sun Oil very much saw the kind of evangelical religious project as being hand in hand with kind of not having much regulation of business. In kind of Christian law circles and kind of kind of conversations broadly, I guess probably this is largely going to be among constitutional law scholars and but also you know professors and but also I, I would assume it would be in the activist world as well. The relationship between the kind of free enterprise, deregulate businesses, passions, and religious freedom. Like, do those get have those gotten more intertwined? Are is there a, a Protestant Catholic? tension there? Yes. Now, I agree with you that Catholic social teaching is more definite on things, right? It's hard, you know, Protestant social teaching is just not as old as Catholic tradition and not as well defined or even probably thought through. And so there might be a divide there too. I think just like with the other question, it's almost, you see some strains of Catholic and Protestant, but you really can't you know, I need to be very careful about saying, well, this is what Catholics think and this is what Protestants think, because you can find both camps, both places. And But there is social teaching. I think what, what you see more of is just generally, apart from just in Christianity generally, Catholic and Protestant, is you see a strong desire, of course, for justice, because that's what we're called to. You know, a recognition that just laissez-faire policies won't achieve that. And so there needs to be government policies that do offset, you know, in the environment. The easiest one, of course, is the environment. and But there are so many others, you know, workers' compensation and benefits and things like that, where the government does need to help people in standing up to, quote unquote, corporations. That's necessary, in my view, at least. And I think in a lot of Christian 
most Christians' views. There needs to be a safety net. There needs to be times when the government comes in and stands up for people who, who can't necessarily stand up for themselves. On the other hand, I do think there is an increasing move toward that a lot of religious freedom people who are very troubled by what's been happening to religious freedom in the last 10 to 20 years are moving toward being more open to deregulating in the economic sphere because they see that the problem is that the government needs to have uh, counterbalancing as well. And so in the economy, if, if the government's calling the shots everywhere all the time, that is not good for individual freedom. You know, one place where we saw this, of course, is in the Jack Phillips case or the Baronel Stutzman cases where non-discrimination laws are extremely important and good. But we saw government civil rights commissions, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, in my view, abusing its power and basically trying to put a baker out of business because he was trying to live according to his religious beliefs. And so I think that type of situation is driving many people in the religious freedom world to take a second look and say, well, maybe the problem is the government can get have too much power and we need to be protecting property and businesses more. In talking about the Hobby Lobby case or any of these cases to say, well, corporations shouldn't have religious freedom. But as the point that we made in our brief in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you know, if you go back to 17th century or 18th century England, one of the main ways that the Church of England was pressuring Catholics to leave the Catholic faith and become Protestants was by limiting how they could make their livelihood. There was a limit on how many employees I think Catholic employers could have at one point in England. And so economic pressure is a very real way of limiting religious freedom in, even today in many countries. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Okay. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Kim, I'm glad that you're talking about some of the issues that have been pressing and prioritized within the Christian legal community more recently. I would be interested in hearing you talk about how those values and priorities have changed over time and when this community first started to coalesce, how they defined those. Back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of our focus was on getting an interpretation by the Supreme Court of the Establishment Clause that did not require discrimination against religious people. 
because in the 70s, there was this strict separationist idea. Separation of church and state is good, but it was being taken to an extreme in the 70s that was not good, where religious people were being denied equal participation in government programs and even were being like my organization. I started fighting for the right of religious student groups to be on campuses because we were being pushed off public university campuses. So there was this reading of the Establishment Clause that just was way too broad. That pretty much got solved so far. But then what we didn't see was, and the religious groups on campus are just a good example of this, it's a broader issue. But once the Establishment Clause problem got solved in the mid-1990s, where the Supreme Court made clear that letting religious student groups meet on campus to talk about the Bible and pray did not violate the Establishment Clause, then the issue became, well, you choose your leaders according to your religious beliefs. CLS requires its leaders to agree with its statement of faith. And that's religious discrimination. And so we started seeing, this time it was a non-discrimination policy being used to say, oh, you're discriminators because you want your leaders to be the same religion as you are. And so therefore you can't be on campus. This is kind of emblematic of the larger shift from not being so worried about the establishment clause to being worried about the application of general laws to religious groups to, again, exclude them from the public square. I've been trying to track this thread about where Protestants and Catholics have found common cause. In the specific religious freedom cases that you were mentioning, Kim, were you seeing both Protestants and Catholics kind of equally worked up and frustrated about these types of things? Or was there one community that was more out in front than another? On the campus access issue, and I have to warn you, this has been my passion for years, so I get focused on it, but it's been going on for 40 years. So on that issue, it tended to be the evangelical groups for a long time that were the focus of being kicked off campus. But then it started being the Catholic groups too. And so they started becoming very concerned as well. And now at the University of Iowa, there's an ongoing lawsuit where it's not just the Catholics and the Protestants, it's the Muslims, the Jewish groups, the Sikhs, it's everybody being kicked off. So I think we've just seen our society becoming less and less understanding of what religion is and why religious groups would insist that their leaders be religious, the same religious beliefs as they are. And so therefore, that lack of understanding that maybe was focused on the evangelicals in the 80s and 90s has started to apply to everybody. I'm curious about the lay of the land as there has been a pretty big growth in a number of these kind of Christian religious freedom organizations. What has that growth kind of done in regards to like advocating for religious freedom? Obviously, some of these organizations have different tactics. Some of them have different kind of emphases. And, you know, there's some of them that are more explicitly Catholic and some of them that I think seem to be more explicitly evangelical. I'm wondering what has the rise of Christian legal organizations, whether it's, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom, American Center for Law and Justice, you know, you got Liberty Council, Liberty Institute, and then, you know, on the Catholic side, you have these ones that are like Thomas More. How has that shaped just general advocacy on religious freedom issues? Christian Legal Society has been around the longest of the groups that 
we're thinking about right now. We've been doing this since the late 1970s. And we're also the only organization with Christian in our name. So I have to, I think that (laughs) does influence how we do things. And our hallmark is that we are willing to talk to just about anybody in order to talk about religious freedom and defending it. We tend to work together fairly well, I think. There's not like a coordinated effort, but we, in some ways, the Christian religious liberty world is fairly small, and so we know each other pretty well. And so we do work together quite a bit, but we have different focus. There are things that Christian Legal Society would not necessarily be interested in that other groups are, and that's good. And I think that the diversity of groups is a good thing. I think competition is always good. It makes all of us a little better at what we're doing. Yeah, one of the emphases that you do at Center for Law and Religious Freedom, as my understanding, is you, get, you guys do a, a fair number of explainers, it seems like to me, that there's, you know, obviously there's been a number of these statements that have come out, like what can a school do? But, you know, it, it seems to me that I've, I've, I think I've seen a number of Center for Law and Religious Freedom kind of broad explainers for Christians and for administrators or for other folks just kind of explaining, like, here are the rules of the road that would be kind of be broadly agreed to. Well, that's one of the big changes if you're looking at the dynamics over the last few decades. One of the big changes, I think, is the realization that for religious freedom to be defended in this country, everyone has to understand why it matters. For example, CLS put together what we call the Religious Freedom Toolkit. If you go to our website, Christian Legal Society, you can find it, where I pick out like 15 law review articles that people should be familiar with. And if they just read one, that's terrific. Because we've seen this kind of growing attack on religious freedom in this country in the last decade or more. Really, if individual Christians don't understand why religious freedom for everyone, not just Christians, matters. If we're not able to articulate to our neighbors and our co-workers and our families why it matters, we're not going to keep religious freedom, no matter how many victories we have in the courts, because religious freedom really is something that it has to be rooted in our culture for it to last long term. I want to talk about Amy Coney Barrett again the woman of the hour. And specifically when I was talking to you about her being an anomaly or not, I am really curious given that, again, we've had so few women on the Supreme Court. How many women are in this space? Is is this something that, you know, she's just part of a new generation where there's far more women represented in this space and we should not necessarily be surprised. It's just that she happens to be the one that's in the most prominent place first or is this something about her that makes her surprising? And then I guess a follow-up question is, I would be love to hear from you to the extent that you're willing to share from your own personal experience about what being a woman in the space has also been like. One of the things is that, that she has benefited from the fact that, you know, 40 years ago, someone like Justice Ginsburg went to law school when there were, I think, eight women in Justice Ginsburg's class at Harvard, there were so many opportunities not available. Justice Ginsburg, of course, was, I think, close to first in her class, if not first in her class. And yet there were so many law firms that would not even give her an interview because she was a woman. So she ended up going into the academic side of things before she became a judge and, of course, did a lot of work with the ACLU. I think we are seeing a lot more women who are highly qualified, who are serving as judges. I don't have the statistics for how many of President Trump's appointments have been women, but a large number have been. And we're seeing it in part because of the pioneers a generation or two ago who didn't have the opportunities. But as a result of their pioneering, the opportunities opened up. So Amy Coney Barrett, she 
clerked for Justice Scalia. And I forget who the first woman clerk for a U.S. Supreme Court justice was, but it wasn't that long ago, right? And yet that's a kind of experience that is a trademark of people who are cho- who are nominated to the Supreme Court. So you kind of need to check that box. You need to check the box of being a federal court of appeals judge. And that wasn't open to women a while ago. So I think what we're seeing with her is that women just have more opportunities in the last 10 to 20 years because of the hard work that other women did 30 and 40 years ago. How would you have described this, the Christian legal space, when you started coming up in it? I was on a lot of panels because they wanted a woman to speak. (laughs) (laughs) And fortunately, sometimes I still get invited to a panel because they want a woman to speak, but they have a lot more choices now. I could start naming all the women who do what I do, and I would leave somebody out and offend them, I'm afraid. But there just are a lot of women attorneys doing religious freedom work for the organizations you named earlier, for ADF and Beckett and First Liberty, and the list goes on. Women are very well represented in the space I'm in now. They weren't when I started, but the world was so small as far as the religious liberty world back then that that wasn't so unusual. And then also there were 25% of my class at law school was women when I was in it, you know, around 1980. And of course, I think it's more like 50% now. I know, too, that Antonin Scalia had nine children and Amy Coney Barrett has seven children. And there's been a decent amount that's been made about the size of her family, even though I'm sure there's been a number of Supreme Court justices throughout history who have had large families. What do you make of that conversation? Is this something, is the size of her family, in your opinion, not or unusual in this circle? Well, it is unusual, obviously, but I was talking to a friend who's a woman attorney who has three children, and I had two sons who are grown. You know, I think basically once you get to one or two children, you're saying, how does she do it? No matter how many children there are, because, you know, raising children is is very time consuming and just it takes your focus to some degree. I am really glad to see a woman with reasonably young children on the court. I think it means she will be forward-looking. It means she will be thinking about the future. And that isn't to say that Justice Kagan or Justice Sotomayor are not concerned about the future, but I do think neither of them has children. And I do think we need that perspective represented on the court. So I am excited about Judge Barrett's nomination for many reasons, but that's one of them. I'm also curious as well about how racially diverse the space has been in that you've been in. Have, is this something that you've seen change over time in the same way that you've seen it change with women? No, it's not that there are no, there, that there is not racial diversity in my space, but it's not what it should be. That is a problem. I mean, that just is a problem. I'm not quite sure how we resolve that problem. Going back to your earlier question about Catholic Protestant, I think one of the things that brought the Catholics and the Protestants together is the abortion decision and working together on pro-life issues, which often overlap with religious conscience issues, right? Do doctors and nurses have to help perform abortions? Well, that's not just a pro-life issue. That's a religious freedom issue. That issue started bringing the groups, the Catholics and Protestants together. Other issues did as well, but then it was really cemented by the HHS mandate under the Obama administration where Religious employers like the Little Sisters of the Poor Catholic Order were being required to violate their religious beliefs by providing 
contraceptive coverage or abortion coverage in their insurance or to patient coverage. That brought that together. What I have found recently, we're asking in our religious freedom area, we are asking literally African-American pastors and others, where are you in this religious freedom fight? There still is a lot of distrust, right, of what religious freedom means and where the evangelical church has been in the past in the civil rights area. That is still something I think, and I I hope I'm being fair, I think the African-American church is becoming increasingly concerned about religious freedom issues as they see the government becoming more aggressive toward other, you know, toward the Catholic church and others in this area. But they also have this, this latent, oh, you're just coming to talk to us now when you need us, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And so there's that concern about religious freedom, but there's still this kind of hesitancy too often, not everybody by any means, but too often in this space because they fairly don't want to just be their views solicited and their help solicited when we need it, but not when they need help from us as well. Is that the ghost of the advocacy on behalf of Bob Jones University when, you know, that was obviously a some historians have, I think, in my mind, blown that out of, you know, said that that's all the religious right was about in the 80s. I, I think that's a, a crazy overstatement. But I do wonder if the advocacy on behalf, again, that a lot of conservative Christians did say, and somewhat reluctantly in some cases, on behalf of Bob Jones University and the higher ed side and, and a number of secondary schools who had religious freedom grounds for saying they wanted to remain segregated. Yeah. Is, is that the ghost of some of that advocacy back 40 years ago? I think it goes further back. I don't I don't know, and you may know more about this, but I wouldn't have put it at the Bob Jones because I think that was an interesting situation, but and maybe it is, maybe it is the problem, but I think it just goes much further back to the view that too many times slavery was defended by people who claimed to be Christian. Now I think the opposite side of that is the abolitionist movement was largely driven by evangelicals, you know, so I really think slavery would not have ended in this country, but for the evangelicals, but the evangelicals were on both sides of the issue, right? And I think it's that memory, which is, you know, 150, 200 years back, that's what I hear when I'm I'm trying to understand where the problem is. And also, you know, the 60s civil rights movement, I think evangelicals tend to be not conservative in a political sense, but just in a changing views since. And I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence that in the 60s, a lot of evangelicals supported the civil rights movement, but a lot didn't. And I think those are the kind of the two I would look to for the reason for, you know, a lot of of repair work needing to be done. Thank you for sharing that with us. As we wrap, Kim, I, I was wondering if you can just say what your predictions are for the future of this community. I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. You know, I am deeply concerned about where religious freedom is in our culture right now. I think too often people will buy the idea that, well, we're not being persecuted like the church in China, and it's good to be persecuted because that's when the church grows. I want to avoid persecution as much as possible. I think the church thrives when there isn't persecution as well. We've become very spoiled in this country. We assume 
that religious freedom is just part and parcel of our society. And it's it really is under some very strong attacks in the past 10, 15 years. So, you know, I think there will continue to be a need for very strong defenders of religious freedom across our faith spectrum. I think individual Christians really need to come understand what religious freedom is, why it's important for everyone, and how to articulate that importance, and especially to come to the defense of religious freedom, even when they may not agree with the underlying controversy, which is, you know, so I heard so many people say, well, you know, Jack Phillips should just bake the cake for the wedding. And maybe that's what they would do, but they they need to respect that other people's religious conscience takes them in a different direction. And they need to be willing to defend other people's rights to live according to their religious beliefs so that they can live according to their religious beliefs too. All right, Kim. Yay. This was an awesome discussion. Thank you so much for your insights and reflecting with us about this community that you represent. People who have feedback for us, all of our listeners, please send us email about this. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also find us at CT Podcast on Twitter. Now is one of my favorite segments called Slow to Speak, which is when we get to hear from our listeners. We have some really thoughtful emails that we got from you all this week. Thank you all so much for writing. First letter I'm going to read is one from Caitlin Glow. Caitlin, I hope I said your name correctly. She writes, I really appreciate all y'all's work in trying to maintain balance politically. As one coming from a more Democrat-leaning perspective, it is really refreshing having a biblically-based Christian news source that engages with social issues from outside of a simple religious right stance. And Caitlin wrote in about episode 231. And 231, for those of you that recall, was our episode about Bethel Sean Foyt and his protests and praise services that he led around the country. She writes, For this podcast, however, I wish you'd gotten into more of the, quote, tone-deaf part of Foyt. His declaring that these are, quote, protests and therefore are allowed events seems incredibly harmful and in that it makes light of the intensely needed anti-racism protests in our country today. I appreciated the article that came out about how church closures or restrictions during COVID are not persecution. However, the current Christian angle that argues that churches being closed and protests being allowed just shows the, quote, godlessness of the left government makes me really sad and I think it is dangerous in its belittling of anti-racism work and important rallying cries against injustice. I think it could have been helpful to at least mention these issues. Thanks for working to navigate these difficult issues in biblical ways. Thank you, Caitlin, for your very thoughtful letter to us. I will say that when we recorded this, I think that a lot of Foyt's language at that time was still talking about things. Well, I guess he was talking a little bit about them being protests. He was talking also using a lot of religious freedom angle. I don't know if you saw Ted, but in his more recent one that he did a couple days ago, I want to say, he specifically said he was going to call it a protest <laughs> and because he wanted it to be allowed. Does that ring a bell to you? Yep. Yep, he was doing that a little bit with the uh, Chicago protest, which was the one right before we recorded. I I, I do think <laughs> whether it's the you know she can says that the tone deaf part of it. Yeah, I think that there's the use of various kinds of rhetoric is is something that we're we're gonna we keep talking about on on quick to listen, but is also something that yeah sometimes we just talk about it and and let the reader kind of there's not a lot to, to talk about on that other than to say you know it's it's not really a protest. 
What are you going to say? <laughs> I mean, they are, I, it, I, is, I, it is and it isn't a protest, right? I mean, it is. Is it a concert? Is it worship? That's that's well, especially I think I think what Caitlin may be trying to get into as well is just the various ways that the government has tried to recognize maybe protests as being distinct from other gatherings and how it's decided to shut down them or regulate them. And given that most of the protests this year were about racial injustice things, it is interesting when people have a thing with music that doesn't seem to be talking about that issue. But that is a deeper discussion for another day. Thank you, Caitlin, though, for the, your note. Moving on. Next is an excerpt from a letter we got from Nick Hyde. I have to confess that CT's coverage of Ravi Zacharias's alleged sexual misconduct gave me a serious gut punch as opposed to a gut check. My thoughts did immediately go back to the podcast about Jerry Falwell Jr. and your guest's insistence that all major ministries need to have some kind of built-in accountability, especially when the ministry is based on the work and face of one particular person. I believe in this day and age of mega ministries headed up by Christian rock star ministers, it's time for the evangelical church to do its own serious gut check and start putting together some ways of holding those who are entrusted with highly visible public positions accountable and responsible for the trust that is placed in them. Thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, accountability is one of CT's, not hobby horses, but one of one of the things we're, we're pretty passionate about here. Absolutely. If people want to listen to that board episode that he talked about, that was episode 227. And then Nick also had written in about the allegations against Robbie Zacharias, which we covered last week in episode 232. All right. Now I'm going to read an email from Mark Roots. Mark, I also hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, but I'm sorry if I'm not. I was interested to hear the discussion about leaders getting ill and the Christian and biblical perspectives. I appreciate the nuanced and informative discussion regarding Old Testament, New Testament, and modern perspectives regarding disease and their interpreted causes. Disease can be a terrible blight on a person, family, and potentially a nation. There can be many causes and cures, and I believe you did an admirable job covering them. The only critique I have is noticeably singling out of President Trump during the discussion of current leaders. While we are in the U.S. and President Trump's recent positive test certainly prompted the topic, he isn't the only leader to have tested positive for COVID-19. Some other examples are Boris Johnson, Prince Charles, and Alexander Lushenko, to name a few. Yet no other leader nor influential figure was mentioned. Usually the podcast does a good job of filling out the full picture during discussions, but often seems to miss the mark when Trump is the subject. He is certainly a polarizing figure, and I don't envy anyone that must report on him, but that does not excuse the lack of context. And I would say, Mark, we did not talk about other global leaders, and that is a very fair point, especially for a podcast that just try to be globally minded. And I wish we had done that. I would also say there are definitely other leaders that we could have included on there. For instance, Bolanzaro. Yes, global media manager Morgan Lee. Well, you know, I've been talking with Morgan and she has criticized herself amply for this, Mark, I, I promise you. So she is very globally minded. Good job picking that up. Finally, from Dave Hoffner, a personal note. My wife and I have been regular listeners for some time now. I enjoyed this episode. He's, he's talking about last week's episode about Trump's illness. He says, I enjoyed this episode, though as, as is often the case, it really touched very little on the current event that sparked the topic. I enjoyed exploring together the role of illness in the Old Testament as a barometer, so to speak, of the king's covenantal compliance. What I really enjoyed, though, was hearing from Carmen Imes. When my father, Harry Hoffner, died unexpectedly about five years ago, she wrote a beautiful tribute to him on her blog. And my sister-in-law read that article during our father's memorial service the following week. I have never met Dr. Imes in person, but I'm so pleased to hear her carrying on the work of relevant Old Testament scholarship and Christian ministry. Thank you for inviting her to be a guest. And it was a blessing for us to, quote, meet her again through your program. That's lovely. 
I did want to say, I, I also appreciated the comment that I enjoyed this episode, though, as is often the case, it touched very little on the current event that sparked <laughs> the topic. Certainly, uh, this episode does that as well to some degree. And I'm curious from listeners if they see that as a bug or a feature of Quick to Listen. We do want to go, quote, beyond hashtags and hot takes. But yeah, sometimes it's, it's more of a hook for us to talk about a deeper issue. So I'm curious if that is annoying to y'all or if that is what you enjoy about the program. So we encourage feedback on that and anything else that you would like to tell us. And if there is an episode that we did talk about the entire the top that one topic the entire time, please point to that as an example because I do not feel like it has been very many of the shows that we have done. So I would be curious for what people would perceive as us staying on that main topic. Yeah, get in touch with us at Twitter at, at CT Podcasts, or you can send us an email at ctpodcasts at christianitytoday.com. Now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that's brought them joy recently. Probably people at this point that have listened to the show for a while are already guessing in their mind what Ted is going to say. But Ted, you should go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't let people down. The board game that I played this week that brought me joy is a game that I would not recommend to casual listeners or casual board game listeners. A game called Gloomhaven one of the most expensive games on the market, definitely one of the biggest games on the market. Got it at a wonderful board game garage sale at a board game store near us fairly cheaply and it was unused. It's miniatures, like it's a campaign game where there's, you know, 60 different, you know, kind of games that you play as you move along this thing. One of these classic kind of fantasy games where you're crawling through a dungeon and, you know, one of you is, is, you know, I guess uh, Lord of the Rings-ish Dungeons and Dragons style, but it's very different from Dungeons and Dragons or Lord of the Rings, I guess. Boxes to open, lots of cards to open, lots of little surprises as you play through. A fair bit of rules. It took, took us a couple hours just to figure out how to do the uh, the battles in this game. So I would not recommend it for people who have, you know, half a dozen board games on their shelf. And, and the other thing is for people who have like 100 or more board games on their shelf, they're well aware of this game, Gloomhaven. It's uh, number one on Board Game Geek, has kind of dominated the uh, serious board gamer world for the last few years. There's a sequel about to come out. We've avoided playing it just because of the cost. We got a cheap copy and... We're loving it. So we're, we we barely got through our first uh, our first episode. And so we, we know it's going to get harder from there. We got 10 different games at this uh, board game garage sale. And I had a friend of mine say, hey, those are uh, nine great games that you will uh, not care about at all once you start playing the 10th, the 10th event, Gloomhaven. It is a very all-consuming kind of kind of game. It, we, we definitely finished it and learned to immediately play it, play it again. So that was great. For those who don't care at all about board games, I have something for you as well. And that is the thing that has been giving me joy a lot this week is the music uh, Wendell Kimbrough. Wendell Kimbrough has a number of albums that are all they're on Spotify, but he's done some settings of the Psalms that I've particularly enjoyed. And I have to say, like I, I love the Psalms. I, I do morning prayer. They've been really helpful to me. But Wendell's settings of the Psalms literally have been in my head as I've been waking up over the last few days, last couple of weeks. You know, you know, it's very cliche Christian to say it's been a blessing. There is something that I've been tremendously grateful for, for waking up with these songs in my head. I think I've done a precious moment where I've mentioned his music before. Man, I'm grateful for it again this week. Wendell Kimber, I, I, you know, I, I don't know the guy. It's not like, a, you know, it's not like I'm boosting one of my friends. I'm just saying, for whatever reason, God's putting this stuff in my head in the morning and I, I am grateful for it. That's awesome. And people can find you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson. 
All right. Morgan, what what is your precious moment for the week? Yeah, I feel like I'm getting kind of tropey in mine too <laughs> in developing a brand. I was like, oh, should I mention another hike that I went on? Or should I mention, what was the other thing that I was going to say? My own type of like game that I played recently over the weekend. Well, well, let's say one quick thing. Let's do the one important follow-up that you did text me about this week. Oh and gosh. that is that you wore your helmet on a Divi bike. So oh, specifically yay, in- you can all stop. Texting and mailing Morgan, she is now wearing helmets on Divi bikes. Most times. <laughs> okay, keep keep uh, keep emailing and tweeting it and Morgan All right, or don't. until she does it consistently. No one needs to. All right, it's true. I did text Ted because I wanted someone applauding my good behavior when that happened. But I think my precious moment is going to be the fact that I used my fire pit two times last week and nice had people hang out small groups of people in the backyard one night we ate chili and drank apple cider the other time i made these like potato tacos dish it was a little chilly and it was great to be around the fire and it made me so happy for my backyard and just being able to sit outside there for a longer period of time than just when it's 70 degrees outside grateful for also that and i also just like staring into fires too oh it's the best it's really the best so i did a lot of that and people also, people who made these fires did a really good job as well. So shout out to them. Our landlord recently like shaved down our entire tree. Well, the tree is still exists, but like every single extra branch is now removed. So we've also been using that for firewood too. So that was cool. Nice. Yeah. My daughter was at a birthday party yesterday. The fire accidentally caught the cake. They had like a fire pit. <laughs> uh, the cake got too close to the fire pit. The cake caught on fire. Uh, one of the new presents caught on fire. Yeah. Everything was resolved quickly with minimal damage, but still. Sounds delightful. Like, oh, yeah. Like, actually. Fire pits. You know, fire pits at a birthday party. You know, that could be that could be tricky. Agreed. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Kim, over to you. What is your precious moment? My personal great joy this week was yesterday we were driving home from North Carolina and came through Sam's Gap, which is on the Tennessee-North Carolina border. And it just, the colors of the trees were just incredibly beautiful. And even though spring is my season, not the fall, I don't like going into winter. The leaves go a ways toward making up for the feeling of winter's coming, right? It was just a beautiful time. And then my grateful moment was late last night, get a picture from my son and his wife, and they have three children, and a tree had fallen in their yard and literally barely missed the house. So I'm just so grateful for God's protection. You just never know what's going to happen next. And I'm just thankful for his protection for my family. Well, thank you for sharing that, Kim. Where can people find you? Is there a website that they can find your you or your work? Go to the ChristianLegalSociety.org website. And then you look for the, the Religious Freedom Center for Law and Religious Freedom. And the Religious Freedom Toolkit that I mentioned earlier can be found there. And a lot more about what CLS does. Thank you so much for joining us. And that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. Thank you, everyone, who sends us feedback. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcast. Quick to Listen is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. And our transcript is produced by Umi Ashola. If you have additional feedback that you want to leave, go to Apple Podcasts. We're also available wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you all next week. Bye. 
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.